Why is it so hot this summer? And why is the Montana fossil fuel lawsuit decision so significant? It's time for this week's climate recap. Hit the subscribe button below if you want to stay updated on the climate crisis and clean energy transition. Extreme weather continues to rear its ugly head all throughout the globe. I'm not going to spend too much time on each event, but in the past two weeks, more than 100,000 people have been evacuated due to flooding in Pakistan and northern India. Canada's wildfires have caused tens of thousands of people to evacuate in the country's Northwest Territories. The Pacific Northwest hit new August heat records. The west half of Maui burned to the ground. Southern California saw its first tropical storm since 1997. And currently, Peru is battling deadly wildfires, and Greece is too, as parts of Europe falls into another heat wave. That, while the poles are experiencing record ice melts, likely resulting in the death of thousands of emperor penguin chicks. You know, we're doing great, guys. We're, we're, we're really thriving. Because it's been so disturbingly hot this summer, scientists are looking into other contributing factors to the heat past the El Nino and climate change. One of the likely causes of it being even hotter than expected in certain areas, particularly the Atlantic Ocean, is because shipping pollution has been reduced thanks to a 2020 international agreement. The regulations imposed by the International Maritime Organization reduced sulfur pollution from shipping by 80% over these last few years, which is great air quality news. But has has actually reduced the man-made clouds over the ocean that block some global warming potential. These clouds made from ship sulfur emissions are called ship tracks and can be seen from space. The reduction of these ship tracks has resulted in a 50% boost in climate change impact in shipping corridors. The discourse around this discovery has been very interesting. Prominent science communicator Hank Green from Vlogbrothers considered this accidental geoengineering experiment humans did an invaluable experience that helps us understand more about how we can potentially reduce global temperatures manually. Instead of saying, should humanity take this giant step forward and begin geoengineering the planet? What we're saying is, should we take a giant step forward and do it instead of accidentally and haphazardly and in the most reckless manner possible, do it intentionally and carefully? But many climate scientists push back on serious geoengineering considerations because it can have a disproportionate impact on certain parts of the world, and forming an international agreement on how to go about a geoengineering action is nearly impossible. The intention of geoengineering would be to somehow reverse the effects of greenhouse gases. But even if we found the best possible molecule for the job of reflecting away the sun's energy, that wouldn't reverse the effects of greenhouse gases. And that's because reflecting away the sun's energy is not the opposite thing to stopping the Earth's energy from leaving, which is effectively what greenhouse gases do. And so even if some kind of solar radiation management geoengineering did reverse the heating effects of greenhouse gases, they would have other effects on things like rainfall, potentially disrupting weather patterns all across the world. Another potential factor causing this summer to be hotter is the 2022 Tonga underwater volcanic eruption that injected tons of water vapor into the atmosphere. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas, so the eruption might still be impacting the globe. But the scientific community doesn't think this contributed much to the extreme heat we're seeing. Climate change is still definitely the main cause. Let's go back to one of the most jarring extreme weather events that shocked the world, the Lahaina Fire. Again, I'm not going to go too much into detail on this event because so many people have already covered it, but I think it's important to talk about it as an example of how multiple factors can create a perfect storm like we saw on the island. 
For a recap, the island was experiencing hurricane force winds from nearby Hurricane Dora. And despite knowing the risks, the island's main electric utility, Hawaiian Electric, chose not to shut off power to the island. Islanders were also complaining for years before that the utility company was procrastinating needed infrastructure fixes and cutting away vegetation from power lines. The island floor was particularly primed to catch fire because invasive grasses brought by colonists were dried out by climate change fueled hot weather. That and Lahaina had been converted from a coastal wetland landscape to an agriculture hub for sugarcane and the pineapple industry back in the 1800s. The only thing that didn't contribute to the fire was a Chinese or government space laser. Really, people? Are we really going to bury our heads in the sand that hard? Ridiculous. Anyways, when the fire grew, the government didn't use the emergency siren system, claiming that it was worried people would think that there was a tsunami instead and run towards the fire. When firefighters tried to put out the fire with water, the water system lacked adequate pressure. All these problems led to this being the most deadly fire in U.S. history. The high death toll has tragically risen to 115 people, but more than 1,000 people are still reported missing. Now locals are trying to pick up the pieces, and many are worried that the burnt land will get bought up by developers pushing out the locals who have lived there for generations. And that's what we know for now. I'm sure more information about what went wrong and what happens next will continue to come out for a long time. I hope everyone impacted is able to access food, water, clothing, and shelter. If you want to support the recovery efforts, I'll leave a link to where you can donate down in the description. Fossil fuel companies, including Sonico, ExxonMobil, and Chevron, are working to get a climate lawsuit against them dismissed in a Hawaiian court as we speak. The city and county of Honolulu is suing the companies for lying about how their products impact the environment. Honolulu is asking for fossil fuel companies to pay for climate change-induced damages. The fossil fuel companies' attorneys are trying to argue that cases like this should be in federal courts instead of state courts, but this is unlikely to sway a judge since the Supreme Court actually pushed a similar suit back down to the state courts after fossil fuel companies brought it to their attention. You heard me right. Earlier this year, the conservative supermajority actually sided with climate activists on something. Historically, federal courts are more likely to side with fossil fuel interests compared with state courts. So last year, the fossil fuel industry brought the question of where these suits belonged up to the Supreme Court via Board of County Commissioners of Boulder County v. Suncor Energy, Inc., the Supreme Court voted to keep these cases in state courts, which was a huge win for fossil fuel lawsuits. So Honolulu v. Sonico is a case to keep an eye on. Another one out of Hawaii is Nawahine v. the Hawaii Department of Transportation. In this case, which will head to the court next summer, 14 Hawaiian youth are suing the state's transportation sector for continuing to promote fossil fuel use despite impacts on the climate. This case has a new supporting legal precedent because of a similar one we talked about two recaps ago, Held v. Montana. The judge in Held v. Montana just sided with Montana youth in saying that a 2011 rule Montana imposed stating it didn't need to consider environmental impacts in large projects was unconstitutional. This landmark ruling forces Montana to consider the impact of current and future fossil fuel projects before starting or renewing them. It reinforces that protections for current and future generations in a state constitution does mean that the state is on the hook for its climate impact. Therefore, the decision will also help support similar lawsuits in Hawaii, Utah, and Virginia over the next few years. Let's keep this lawsuit theme going. 
Environmental groups, including the Southern Environmental Law Center, are suing the state of Virginia over the Republican governor's decision to remove the state from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. REGI is a cap-and-trade market between 12 Mid-Atlantic and Northeast states that's meant to encourage the region to reduce its power plant emissions. Power plants under the initiative must purchase allowances to release carbon dioxide if they're a certain size, and this helps tackle the fact that oftentimes plants in one state are helping to power a different state. The environmental groups claim Virginia's Air Pollution Control Board and its Department of Environmental Quality don't have the authority to remove the state from this initiative because it was the General Assembly that voted to enter the initiative in 2020. The Air Pollution Control Board called Reggie a regressive tax on Virginian families and businesses, but the Southern Environmental Law Center argues that the vast majority of Virginians support staying in Reggie because it helps reduce air pollution. For the 18 years the Reggie has been in play, for the original 10 states involved, the states have seen a 50% reduction in total emissions. That's twice the decarbonization rate of the rest of the country. So this is another lawsuit to keep an eye on. Virginia is one of the largest fracking states in the country. Environmental leaders from 185 countries just adopted a multi-billion dollar fund to support the international goal of conserving 30% of lands and waters by 2030. This goal was deemed necessary by global environmental groups because the Earth is experiencing a major biodiversity crisis. Without biodiversity, we have no chance of solving the climate crisis. Some call the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework the Paris Agreement for Nature. It lays out 23 targets, including having the international community provide $200 billion a year for conservation efforts by 2030. The world's island nations and least developed countries are slated to receive more than a third of those funds. In order to reach the 20 billion dollars a year budget, developed countries must provide at least 20 billion dollars a year by 2025, which I'm very skeptical they'll do considering rich countries have still failed to provide the 100 billion dollars a year to help developing countries prepare for a rougher climate. The Nature Fund, which is managed within the Global Environment Facility, needs at least $20 million in it to become fully operational by December, and it is well short of that so far. But Canada said it would add another $147 million, and the UK promised to add another $13 million, so hopefully it will reach that target soon. Ecuador passed a referendum to ban oil drilling in parts of the Yasumi Amazon Reserve and mining in the Choco Andino Forest outside of Quito. Oil and mining are the country's first and fourth largest outputs, so this is a big deal. These bans have been in the works for a while now from indigenous and environmental activists looking to preserve the Amazon rainforest, which is quickly becoming unstable. This ban requires the state-owned oil company Petro Ecuador to stop its operations in the area within a year. This will cut Ecuador's oil production by 12%, and the company says it will cost the country's income $13.8 billion over the next decade. But activists want to send a message that there's no more room for destructive extractive methods amidst a biodiversity crisis. A single hectare of Yasumi forest has 650 species of trees and hundreds of species of animals, according to Ecuador's environment ministry. Back in the U.S., President Biden declared 900,000 acres around the Grand Canyon a national monument to protect indigenous sacred land from uranium mining. This is the fifth national monument Biden has created since entering the office. President Obama originally declared a 20-year ban on uranium mining in the area, so this new national monument makes that ban permanent. This ban has frustrated nuclear advocates because uranium prices have gone up since Russia declared war against Ukraine. Russia is a pretty big supplier of uranium, but Kazakhstan 
actually represents 43% of the world's supply. Fun fact. Uranium mining protesters argue the mining process results in radioactivity in the area that can potentially enter the waterways. There is an exception to this ban, though. Companies like Energy Fuels Inc. that received mining approvals before this ban can continue mining. Finally, we've got to talk about the Fukushima water release happening right now in Japan. Protesters have been arrested and China is blocking the sale of Japanese seafood because the Japanese government has begun releasing water into the Pacific Ocean that was originally used to cool its Fukushima nuclear reactors after its famous 2011 meltdown. Should we be worried? Does this mean we're going to start seeing Simpson three-eyed fish coming off the Japanese coast? Well, let's talk about why the Japanese government and the International Atomic Energy Agency think not. For a overly simplistic recap, the plant melted down after an earthquake and tsunami caused its backup shutdown process to fail. Water was poured over the reactors to avoid a larger disaster, and this water immediately became radioactive. Since then, the Japanese government has been filtering out the radioactive particles from the millions of gallons of water using an advanced liquid processing system. It's able to filter out most of the hazardous particles except for tritium. Tritium is made from hydrogen, so it's nearly impossible to filter out of water. From there, the government diluted the contaminated water with seawater, bringing the tritium levels down to well below safety limits. Now to put the wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, the Japanese government is piping it through a tunnel under the seafloor to further dilute the water. This release process will happen slowly over decades to make sure it doesn't impact the marine ecosystem too heavily. Many scientists say this is basically as safe of a disposal process as you can get. Safer than, frankly, a lot of nuclear wastewater gets treated globally. So why are people in neighboring countries so upset? Why did China do a blanket ban? Frankly, I don't know. The only conclusion I can come to is just fear around anything nuclear and radioactive. Am I missing something? Uh, let me know in the comments, because I really can't find anything um, that would give people pause. And that was your climate recap for the week. If you found this information useful, please like and share the video so more people can see it. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Thank you so much to the people on Patreon who helped support me and my fur baby, Rue. A special shout out to the climate confident and courageous David H., Norman Anal, Greg H., Paul B., Phil Plasma, Dan Morton, Nate, Specker, Bree C., Climate Teacher John J., Deanne, Steve, Kevin Morton, and SKP Joe Corsgold. I greatly appreciate your support of $5 or more. If you would like to support the Sphere, please check out the Patreon and buy me a coffee links in the description below for reoccurring or one-time payments. Bye for now.